Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, with it being the week of St. Patrick's Day, I check out the health of the nation with Professor Catherine Hayes, Associate Professor in Public Health and Specialist in Public Health Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. We'll take a look at the Healthy Ireland Survey 2021 and you'll be glad to hear that the vast majority of us consider ourselves to be healthy and well. We'll also be talking through grief with Neve Finucane, Coordinator of Social Work and Bereavement Services at St. Francis Hospice. We talk about waves over stages, how everybody is different and everything is normal and how to handle anniversaries and special days. And I'll also be meeting an incredible couple, William and Sinead Tavano, who fundraised €28,000 to provide a room at the National Maternity Hospital for people to grieve with their babies as they did with their little girl Florence. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm good. I hope you all enjoyed the raft of bank holidays. You banished snakes and doused the shamrock. I had a nice few days, bits of work. I was here at News Talk a couple of the mornings this week and then my family came in to soak up the atmosphere. And I'd have to say it's an amazing or has been an amazing lineup by the festival committee, it has to be said. And I have a soft spot for a Spiegel tent. So we mainly hung out in the festival quarter for St. Patrick's Day Festival and went for food. And my son actually requested dumplings for food. So I feel my parenting duties are done now as I have developed his palate beyond the fried offerings of a kid's menu, which actually is a major bugbear of mine, to be honest. Nothing wrong with having a choice of that food, of course. Love it myself from time to time, but not just that, please. I have continued throughout the week to monitor my thoughts and if a negative one pops in, I reframe it and it seems to be making a difference. Sure, it's backed by neuroscience. We can create new patterns and ways of thinking by repetition. And I did a webinar with Roxy Nafusi. She's a London girl who is killing it in the wellness world lately. She's everywhere. Her best-selling book, Manifest, is about to be translated into 11 languages and in the top 10 here in Ireland and the UK. Sell out workshops, tour on the way. Anyway, she spoke in this webinar about the fact that the average person has between 12 and 60,000 thoughts a day. 80% of those are negative and of that 80%, 95 of those are repeated over and over again, which is pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? And a good way to reprogram your thoughts is to catch them, as I mentioned, but also to practice gratitude as it brings the more positive into focus. So Roxy was suggesting writing down at the end of each day every single positive thing that happened to you from the sun shining to your coffee tasting nice to the bus driver having a cheery good morning for you. Then the more you get into that, the more you're going around looking for these things. And Dr. Joe, Dr. Joe Dispenza discovered that 10 minutes of gratitude focus a day, three times a week for four days can improve your immune system by 50 percent as it's not having to deal with as much stress load. Now, I have some great news. A plan of mine for a while, COVID kind of halted it, as it did many things, is to get out and about with the show. And I'm hoping to have some live dates around the country that you can come to. And I also want to give an opportunity to my listeners to come together and experience some of the health and wellness endeavours I've been prattling on about over the couple of years. So sea swims, forest bathing, outdoor yoga, 
ice baths, meditation and mindfulness workshops. I have loads of ideas and we are going to start with an Alive and Kicking hike on Sunday the 3rd of April. Now, as I said, I do plan on heading around the country, but this first one will be in the east in the Wicklow area. So to register your interest in taking part in the Alive and Kicking hike in Wicklow on Sunday the 3rd of April, it'll be in the morning around a 9am meet. Go to newstalk.com forward slash alive and kicking and fill out the form there. Numbers are limited, but you will be contacted with more details. And if you don't get to this one, I promise you there will be more. Can't wait to get started and to meet some of you. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, as we celebrated all things Irish this week, I decided to take a look at the health of the nation and talk through the Healthy Ireland Survey 2021. And joining me to look at it is Professor Catherine Hayes, Associate Professor in Public Health and a Specialist in Public Health Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hello, Claire. Because this is a very much Irish week with St. Patrick's Day happening this week already, I wanted to have a look at Ireland's health. So we're going to get into some of the stats. I know you looked at the Healthy Ireland survey for us for 2021. But in general, how healthy a nation are we? In terms of overall health, basically 84% of people perceive that their health is very good or good. Um, and only 3% rate their health as bad or very bad. So, I mean, that's good. But um, about one in four people have a long-term illness or chronic condition that has lasted six months or more. And the most common conditions would be high blood pressure, arthritis, asthma, diabetes and high cholesterol. And have you noticed over your years that our attitudes to health has changed? Oh, yes, I think so. I think we are much more conscious of being healthy. People do realise that, you know, health is their wealth. And, you know, it is really important to be healthy. And there's a bit more of a holistic approach, isn't there, to health? We don't just have that message of eat less, move more and you'll tick all the boxes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's much more complex than that. And we realise that uh, it's very much influenced by our mental health. And, you know, we've seen that during COVID. And so it is, it's an interplay of factors, very complex, simply not, it's not simple messages. Now that said, with everything that we've said there, the multi-dimensional view of health, the Healthy Ireland survey kind of goes to the, the usual suspects, doesn't it? When it's assessing how healthy we are, smoking, drinking, weight. Are they the main determinants really when it comes to health? Um, well, they're an important preventable determinant that we can do something about, but it did also address social connectedness and mental health and uh, also other aspects like visiting GPs, etc. So, um, you know, it isn't just about, again, those, those, those physical things, but I guess they're the things that we can do something about and maybe they're a little bit easier to do something about. So let's look at smoking then. I was surprised to see that smoking went up for people during the pandemic. I mean, I say I'm surprised. It was a very stressful time and there wasn't much else to do, was it? So that, But that is an interesting statistic, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it, it is interesting. Um, 28% of smokers smoked more than before March uh, 2020, but 21% smoke, smoked less. But overall, the balance there was in the negative. Um, I suppose what's encouraging is that a quarter of those who attempted to, to quit smoking in the previous 12 months were successful. 
So I think that's, you know, a really positive message uh, because, you know, a quarter of smokers quitting, I think, is is a really good message. And, you know, there are another almost 30 percent trying to quit or actively planning to do so. And there's really good help there, you know, for people who, who want to stop smoking, because that's probably the single biggest uh, thing that you can do for your health uh, if you're a smoker is to stop. Yeah. And I mean, look, no judgment, whatever people want to do. But as you said, there are people that it's niggling at them. I want to give this up. I'm not feeling great in myself. Some people are happy enough to, to continue all the way like my grandfather before me. But what I was interested in was the support that is out there. And women in particular, lung cancer, I was surprised to read, is the, the biggest cancer among women. And when they go to the groups, that shared experience is so important and really adds to their success. Well, that's just it. Um, um, Lung cancer deaths are the commonest cancer deaths now in in women. And lung cancer ranks second in terms of occurrence after breast cancer. So it's really important. And uh, we don't talk about it as much as we do breast cancer. No, no, we don't. And this is the thing. And it's so strongly associated with smoking. So that's why there is an imperative to really um, act and uh, and do something about it. Do you think that there is an idea that smoking will control your weight and that might be a reason people will do it and that we need to blast that myth a little bit? Well, I mean, that's been around for as long as really, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it probably does control your weight if you're having a cigarette rather than having, you know, unhealthy snacks. So, you know, there, there is, I mean, you know, possibly so, some element of truth in that you won't gain as much weight if you're smoking. But, you know, that's not, you know, that's not the reason to, you know, to smoke. Can we bring in the weight then? Because that's still a major focus when it comes to health and it's being discussed now openly. There's a lot of backlash about how we treat weight stigma, fat phobia and all that side of things. What happens to this information? I suppose that's my question because there are lifestyle illnesses that come with extra weight, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol. So there are health implications involved. But when we look at people gaining weight here in Ireland, how are are we helping them? Are we helping them adequately? And are we moving on from the term I mentioned, eat less, move more mentality? Because it's more complicated than that. Yes, it's a lot more complicated than that. And uh, it it is simply not just down to personal responsibility for weight. Um, uh, There are genetic components involved in many instances. um, And there are all kinds of um, other areas that are, you know, that that the government, you know, has to do. And, you know, they have done a certain amount uh, in terms of, you know, for example, you know, the sugar tax making, you know, um, sugar sweetened drinks a little bit more expensive. Uh, certainly, we could have maybe subsidies on fresh fruit and vegetables, um, healthy vending machines, so that you can avoid the unhealthy snacks, particularly for people, say, you know, working in hospitals with long hours. Yeah, you know, and people are busy. Lifestyles yeah, people, are busy, pe- aren't like that's, they? That's, yeah. that's just it. So, you know, it isn't about, you know, uh, totally personal responsibility the way it was viewed in the past. It's certainly an awful lot more complex. Finally, then, alcohol. I mean, it being St. Patrick's Day week, the amount of time alcohol gets mentioned in the same sentence, I start to feel it's it's unfair. Even here in the radio station, any show I did, they're like, well, we do something about Ireland's unhealthy alcohol habit. Is it really as bad as we expect or has it just become a stereotype? 
it has been very bad, but things are improving. You know, things are improving. Messages are out there. I mean, the minimum unit pricing on alcohol, you know, will have an impact on younger people. Um, you know, those less than 25 who are most likely to binge drink. So, you know, um, I mean, two thirds of people, you know, drank alcohol in the, in the previous six months. And, you know, those 15 to 34, you know, are most likely to drink alcohol. And most of those would, would drink every week, but they wouldn't binge drink. So, I mean, during the pandemic, um, you know, two out of five, um, you know, drinkers said they were drinking less. OK, and 13 percent, you know, said they drank more. So, you know, the negative stereotype that everybody is drinking more actually, you know, didn't turn out to be the case. So I think that that is a positive message. Um, binge drinking, um, you know, certainly has reduced. Um, and what is binge drinking? Right. I mean, how many drinks is, is a binge? Yeah, well, well, the, the, the one that I use, I mean, for women, it's more than four drinks at one session between two to three hours or whatever. So, okay. Yeah, so okay. that's what they say. So, and five or more drinks for a man. So I say there are different definitions, but that's, you know, I think that's a reasonable one because people want to know what to, what to do, you know, and they want the guideline of what to do. If you drink responsibly, is it OK or should, would we be cutting it out completely? The, the, the general recommendations in Ireland are, um, you know, uh, 11 drinks a week for, for a woman and 17 for a man. But obviously that varies with body weight and everything. Now, if you want, uh, you know, to prevent your, your risk of cancer, so if you want the lowest risk, um, I mean, the guidelines would say don't drink at all. But if you must keep it to one drink a day for a woman and two drinks a day for a man. Look, it, I will, we'll end on, on the high that we started with, that 84% perceive their health to be good or very good and only 3% rate their health as bad or very bad. So I'm, I'm putting us down as a healthy nation. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Professor Catherine Hayes, Associate Professor in Public Health, Specialist in Public Health Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you. Now, William and Sinead Tavano experienced unimaginable loss when they learned their baby at 38 weeks pregnant had died. They spent some difficult days at the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street. And while the staff were amazing, they wanted to turn what they had gone through into something a little more positive, And they fundraised €28,000 to make that happen in the shape of a new bereavement suite in honour of their daughter Florence. And they join me in studio now. Thank you both for trusting me with this very personal story, which I know isn't easy, particularly when you're talking in public in a broadcast studio. That's a whole different setup. But do you talk openly about Florence regularly now with with friends and and family? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it's really important uh, for us to actually uh, talk about her and keep that connection with her through through talking, through um, sharing the small amount of time that we had with her, with with, with friends and family as well. It's it's definitely something where we like to talk about her, you know, I think the same as any parents do. They like to talk about their child. Yeah. And of course, we'll get into the legacy that you have left for her, for everybody to know her name. But can you take us back a little bit about that time in Hollis Street? When you look back, do you remember it with crystal clarity or is it a bit of a a blur? I'm going to say it's a bit of a blur. So we'll writing down our story and 
you know, taking note of all the smaller details has been so important, especially over a year on now that I can look back on that and go, oh, I've forgotten about that. Because you are just running on, you're, you're running on empty. Like you don't really actually realise what's going on around you because it's all so, so intense and everything that's happened at that time. So there's certain things that definitely jump out and, and really stand stand out in, in the story. But then other things, it's nice to reflect on, on, on the bits that we did take down and write down and to remember. Yeah. And did you write things down at the time, Will, or I, I, after? I did. I did. I think I was quite conscious. Um, uh, I don't have the best memory at, at the best of times. So actually trying to make sure I did remember some of the bits, um, some of the things that had happened and some of the people, some of the ways I felt actually at the time. Because, uh, and I'm really pleased that I did because those feelings, as I say, that's the connection with her, with the time that we spent with her. Um, and, you know, talking about, clarity of memory now yeah there are definitely things that are a blur but um there'll be things that will suddenly come back into my memory triggered by anything some small little thing and sometimes it can be really painful but you know there there is that thing that it's I don't mind that sadness because it's that's part of the connection with her and if if I didn't feel sad then I, I think I would feel that connection was being lost. And some of the blog that Will had written for the, the fundraising, which we're going to talk about now in a moment, there were details. That's when you were you were reminded. So it is amazing to have it documented in some way. I think our brain sometimes protects us from memories that are painful, but obviously nothing will erase Florence from your mind. And what had happened then? Had you arrived to the hospital with a with a worry, with a concern? So my first day of maternity leave, um, I was had a bit of a, a lazy morning lying in bed and I, I kind of was thinking there's something not right. So I tried all the usual things they tell you, you know, have a cold drink, fizzy drink, move around, lie on your side. And I just went, there's just something not right. And you can, Dr. Google is great at times, but my God, you don't want to go down that road like when you're when you're in that situation. So I just said, all right, we're getting in the car, we're going. Um, Will Will was on a work call and I, I was trying to like hurry him up so we did we, we headed off then and into Hollis Street Covid obviously meant he had to wait outside um, with the dog in the car because um, we thought he thought he'd just go for a little walk around Marion Square with the, with the dog while I w- went popped in and hopefully everything would be okay but that wasn't the case um, it was very clear straight away that something that, that it wasn't right um, I just remember I ended up just closing my eyes because I just, I couldn't, I could hear the fluster of the midwives pulling in a more senior midwife going to get the doctor and I just closed my eyes. I couldn't, I couldn't look at that as I could hear all the action going on around me, but I just couldn't, you know, I kind of knew, I think I knew before they even said it, I knew that it was, that, that her heart had stopped beating. And well, because of COVID, as Sinead says, you were sitting outside. So when a midwife came out to get you in the car, that was the first time you'd gone into Hollis Street because you hadn't gone to scans, you hadn't gone to anything. Yeah, no, I hadn't um, hadn't been in at all. I hadn't met Sinead's doctor. Um, so there'd been all that part of it that I guess I felt I did feel I'd missed out on. Um, and, you know, Sinead's experience, I think, going in was slightly different to mine. I guess I was quite naively or innocently thinking it'll all be fine. We'd had times where we'd gone in to be checked out anyway, you know, and, and everything was always fine. Um, and there's that bit of self-defense in, in, in one's mind that goes, it'll all be fine. Um, but yeah, then the midwife came out um, to get me. I had the dog. I'd just been walking him around, uh, around, the, around the square. And even then, there's part of my brain was going, 
okay, well, I know this is bad then, but then the other bit still going, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. So it's, yeah, it's pretty complex. So you got the really tough news that the heartbeat had stopped and then you're sent home for a couple of days, but actually you both say that's a positive, for want of a better word, helpful thing because you need time to to process what's ahead. You really do. Yeah, and I remember thinking when we were told, no, you go home for two days, come back in. And I'm thinking, like, what am I going to do for two days at home? Like, what do I, like, why can I not just stay? Because you, you're, you're, you're so scared at that point. We didn't know why she had died. We had no idea. We, we didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, was there something else wrong with me or whatever. So they send you home, but actually you really need that time to process. You know, um, family, my, my parents came up, my brothers, uh, um, and we, we, we were able to kind of process it and then prepare to go in to meet her. Um, you know, repacking the hospital bag was, was was a different kind of hospital bag in a way um, and just getting ready for, for that. So, you know, we didn't leave the house. We just stayed, stayed at home. But it, it, it is important looking back on it now, even though at the time it, it just seemed bizarre to send somebody home. I, I think those two days were the hardest bit of it all. Yes, it was needed to kind of process it. And um, I mean, I, I think we still didn't know what we were going, what was ahead of us. Um, you know, we'd had some explanation, but uh, you can't wrap your head around it, really. Um, but it was it was very tough two days, but equally needed just to take a breather, I guess, um, and actually kind of build up the strength to deal with what was ahead. Um, that's that's how I remember it, anyway. But so tough at thirty eight weeks, as you say, you're you're you, you're ready. Mm. You were starting maternity leave. I'm sure you had everything from car seats to Moses baskets. Everything. So everything. That yeah. is just so tough. But again, you don't want to just be in hospital and then come back. You, at least you had just some sort of preparation. And then back into the hospital where you say the staff were just incredible because obviously the couple going through it are the ones who are weathering the biggest storm. But it's an emotional and difficult time for everyone involved, isn't it? It really is. I mean, those midwives are just exceptional what they do and how they, you know, we there was times where, you know, we were having little laughs with the midwives, which we needed. And other times they were nearly crying with us. And they were just, they really were able to gauge our emotions and where we were and what we needed at the, at the time. And just holding our hands through it and even just explaining the most simple things to me. Um, because I like I'm, I literally was in this mode of, I'm going to just do what I'm told because I, I don't, I'm so lost here in every possible way. So I'm just going to, do what I'm told and they can guide me through it and they did and um, they were really amazing and I love that they were great with Will as well and they just they kind of looked out for him made sure he was fed and had coffees and they were yeah. they were just love great really yeah great. I mean from from the time we went in on the Sunday um you know we then spent the best part of four days in Hollis Street um and yeah without those staff um and and, and it was all of them actually you know midwives even you know the 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 um People bring the food and things. They were just all so supportive and under, understood, I guess, through experience. Um, they knew more than we did as to, you know, at the time as to what we were going through. And, um, you know, it was their ability, their experience, just to gently guide us through things. Um, I, th- I think I, I wrote about, you know, when we when we left home to, to go back home for those two days, Um you know, really not quite sure how I saw the, 
the unborn baby, you know, that, that, that I'd obviously never seen. And, and, um, it was quite complex how I felt about, about it, the baby, you know, and, and, and then when she was born, just the guidance in terms of what to do without, with no pressure from the staff at all, but just gently guiding us with little suggestions, teaching me how to hold her, uh, you know, and, and, and it was different. Um, but taking some photos and things and it was just really expertly done and, you know, their their experience, their knowledge was just invaluable in that. And it is incredible that there are teams there, as you say, to help you. Previous generations would have had none of that and it's so important. You had so much time, you had a memory box made, you were able to spend time, as you said. So when you left the hospital and had those few weeks, which I'm sure were hellish again, because it's the time after that people don't really talk about with all death and and grief. When all the organising and all the processes are done, then you're just left with this this pain. At what point did you decide you wanted to turn that into something positive for Hollis Street? For me, it was actually quite, quite, quite soon afterwards. I don't know whether this is just my character or whether it's more common, but actually in those days and weeks afterwards, quite quickly, it was about keeping busy. Um, I think probably consciously I didn't let myself dwell too much, Um, uh, but having something productive to do was really useful and that that was kind of where the fundraising for the bereavement suite came about. You know, friends and family had been in touch, you know, I knew there were people that want they felt they needed to do something themselves and obviously a lot of them in Britain and, and, and at a distance and couldn't get over with COVID and I think being able to donate to something they were you know help them in terms of being able to do something so that's that's how it came about and as Sinead said the, the the midwives had already mentioned that you know they needed um, a bit of extra money for for the bereavement suite for the new bereavement suite so it just seemed an obvious thing to me and and I got a lot out of having that focus and you know then an excuse to 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 write down what had happened to Florence and and a bit about Florence and kind of wanting to make sure her existence was known you know um you know technically she, she you know she 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 was never you know she wasn't born alive but to me, she still had a life and an existence, and I really wanted to make sure that people knew that and understood that. And and as yeah, her, her existence was, existence was just that much more real. And will I love that talking today and even writing that piece that you are representing dads in this setup because I think a lot of the time sympathy goes to the mum, and I I totally understand why that is. The physical experience does take things to a a different level, but it doesn't mean the loss is is any less. So I love that you're representing the other side of that parenting couple because obviously you feel it as well. And you didn't just raise a small amount, you raised 28,000 euro and the room is now open. I saw pictures of you in the independent smiling in a very special waiting area where there's a butterfly picture on the wall in memory of Florence. So tell us a little bit about where the money went. Yeah, so um, there's now a standalone bereavement suite um, in Hollis Street, which um, there hadn't been before. And yeah, there's a little waiting area with a little sofa um, and, you know, really nicely Florence's name on the wall and kind of memory of her, which just means a huge amount, um, you know, that 
she's you know her, her name is up there uh, and what's, what's been lovely as well is we've had lovely pictures sent to us from friends and also a picture of our new little nephew taken with with the butterflies on the yeah. wall and it's really nice because they feel a connection there as well when friends are and, and my sister-in-law went in to have have their babies that um you know Florence is part of their story as well which has been yeah. really sweet and they've thought a lot about this bereavement suite. There's space to move around. So, you know, you can get that little bit of exercise if you want. Um, there's an isolated stairwell, which I think is really yeah. important. You yeah. know, if you just want to be private in your experience and leave rather than walking through the maternity hospital. So they've really, really thought of everything. And a little bit later in the show, I'm going to get some advice on a grief expert because I think the more we talk about grief, the better people get at knowing that nothing is abnormal about it. Everybody experienced it differently, even in my research for it, as well as experiencing it myself in, in times of life. It's not linear. It comes in waves. It ebbs and flows and all of it is OK. But how are you guys uh, just over a year on? Like I said, it was lovely to see you smiling, sitting in that seat. And I'm sure at one point smiling seemed like something that was never going to to happen again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, life goes on and um there's definitely still sad times and, you know, we go up to Florence's grave quite a lot um, and it's lovely to have that place um, as well. But, yeah, we're doing okay. And, um, yeah, things move forward and, and uh, through what we've done and I still feel that connection with her and uh, with Florence and and she, as I say, you know, she's she's always there with us. Um but yeah, definitely, we're we're able to move on with our lives as well. I think the first few weeks, especially, I mean, I had given birth to a six pound, eight ounce baby. I was try- doing all the healing physically and, and everything else that you do after you have a baby, whether you bring it home or not. So for me, the first few weeks, it was just going through all those things. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm fine. I'm OK. I'll be honest, it was more a few months later when, you know, the world started opening up after COVID I felt like people had, not that they were forgetting, but they were moving on, but we were still the people who lost their baby. Um, and I found that that hardest rather than the immediate time after we came home from the hospital. So coming into last summer, it was, you know, really trying to find a new normal for us um, with, with everything that was going on in the world and then, then with us. So that was that was probably for me the trickiest time. Um, you know, we did, little things become very important to you. So yeah. walking the dog every day, Get up, walk the dog, keep him happy, keep us happy. The days we didn't do that were harder and longer. You know, we planted a veg garden, which was amazing, which kept us going and we were really proud of that. We both did um, courses in UCD um, part-time throughout the summer and there were all these little things that we did. And then what meant so much to us as well was the family and friends who didn't separate us from their family lives. So hanging out with our nieces and nephews or our friends' kids and going for dog walks and going for, you know, going for ice creams and stuff. The ones that brought us in as par- new parents and brought us along with their stuff. That was so important to yeah. us. You don't want people to be afraid of you. No. Sure you don't. No. That no. you're going to break. You just want to be wrapped yeah. in love yeah. and fun along yeah. with everybody else. I, I think everybody's experience is different and, and we're all different individuals. And But, you know, our family and friends, you know, they did they did understand it and... and, and the, People who are just fantastic and understood actually the balance of recognizing, you know, Florence, Florence's death, and but you know the fact that she's still part of our lives, but then also that you know we want to carry on and 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 be positive about things as well. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, actually our experience has been that, you know, people want to want to be there and want to get it right and um, and actually have, in general, been pretty good at getting that balance right uh, for us. But again, the people who have gone through it as well are the ones that are going to understand more than anybody. And you've had a lot of support from an organisation called A Little Lifetime and you were telling me outside even the WhatsApp group to share little moments that happen have made a, a, an immense difference. Yeah, I like my A Little Lifetime ladies are, are just the most um, wonderful bunch. So uh, when we were in the hospital, um, my doctor Jenny had said, look, there's this organisation called A Little Lifetime. Look into them. Um, they do a really good support group and all that kind of thing. So they 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 do the, the support group that you're with a bunch of people and you do for four weeks in a row. Um, you do with the same, you're with the same group, all obviously all on, on video call through COVID. So we were with the same group um, for, for those weeks and meeting up for a two hour talk and, and to, to connect with, facilitated by a grief counsellor. We set up our own WhatsApp group as well, which, which was really, really nice. But, you know, over a year on, those girls, wow, they're they're just, you know, they're just a light, like so important to me. We've met up for lunches and walks and different things as well. They're they're all around the country, but we've all been through something very similar. Some are, some of our stories are very very similar, scarily so. Others, you know, there's different variations in that. Um, but it's so lovely. It could be as simple as like, I cried in the dentist, or I. I saw someone name their baby the same as my baby or it could be something really, really silly. Like I, I don't know, I was in the supermarket and I, something silly happened and, and it, we understand. No one's judging, no one's, you can come out with anything and no one is, no one, is, no, people understand that group. So where, it, I'd be lost without them. Like I just, I have a smile on my face every time I think of that bunch of girls because they're just, they're amazing and I, I'm hope they're all, they'll always be in my life because we've really formed a bond there. And you found, Sinead, that to say something is better than to say nothing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was about two months after we lost Florence and I was getting my nails done or something. And um, someone said, the beautician said, oh, um, do you have any kids? And I said, no, I cried for two days. And I realised that actually, for me, it's going to be important to stay true to myself. Similarly, when I returned to work, I knew some people knew. And I, but I didn't know who knew and who didn't know about what had happened. You know, I, I did a full maternity leave. I was gone for six months um, and I and I came back to work. So three, four weeks back at, back at work, I decided, you know what, I'm going to put stick something on my LinkedIn and I'm going to just say this. This has happened. I'm just back from the weirdest maternity leave ever. Don't be afraid to talk to me about my, my little girl or my dog or my digital transformation, whatever it is you want to talk to me about. Um. But, you know, and if you do have a colleague that, you know, has been through a loss like mine, this is this is how best to deal with it. And I am so glad I did that because so many people have opened up my own colleagues um, people who knew who didn't know people who said, Sinead, I've been in a meeting with you every week for the last four weeks and I did not know that you lost your little girl. And because they just hadn't heard, I guess our interactions are different because of COVID. So I feel being open and honest and actually talking about her is a lot better than not talking about her. Yeah, and that's the thing. You're not going to make it any worse no, for us, honestly, by saying something. Um, you know, and I think we definitely always appreciate the the effort, I guess, and people shouldn't be too worried about kind of sensitivities, but rather just, you know, say something, recognise our baby. Yeah, okay. yeah. There's not a wrong thing to say. Right. Just say it yeah. and not let it be. It's not a secret. 
And there is good news. Florence is to be a sister. There is another baby on the way. And I have to say, you're an incredible couple. There's such a lovely energy between the pair of you and from you after everything you've been through. I don't put it all down to the dog. (laughs) (laughs) And we do wish you all the very best. Thank you for trusting us with such a personal story and for turning it into something positive and helping to fund that bereavement suite in Hollis Street that will be there forevermore. Sinead and William Tavano, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Now, death and grief are very much part of life and yet it's hard to prepare for. But there is some advice for those going through it. And I'm joined now by Niamh Finucane, Coordinator of Social Work and Bereavement Services at St Francis Hospital in Dublin. Hello, Niamh. How are you? Hi, Claire. Nice to meet you. Niamh, somebody hearing that job title would think, oh my God, that must be very tough work. Do you find it rewarding also, though? You're meeting people at a very special time in their lives. Absolutely. I think we meet people um, at a time where there's so much going on for them and our opportunity to be involved in their lives at quite intimate moments um, and the intensity of the work. um, And you see all the sadness and all the grief, but you also see some real beauty and joy um, as people say their goodbyes or, you know, find ways to remember the person who's died or different things. So it's an incredible job to be involved in. And I think also in St. Francis Hospice, as a values-based organisation, it's such a lovely organisation to be working for um, that it it gives me great um, joy as well. Is there a difference? I don't know why we rate grief. You know, we sort of say, oh, well, look, they were they had a good innings and that's kind of a better death than a shock tragedy or, you know, a child. And I suppose there is some truth in it. But does it make a difference that you're at a hospice where people get a warning, they get a notice, they know somebody's at end of life and they get time to to have that that goodbye and come to terms with it? I think an anticipated death does give opportunities that isn't there for a sudden death. But the fact that somebody's in a hospice, people can still be reeling because maybe their diagnosis or re-diagnosis was so recent. Um, They can be still in total shock that this is actually happening. And for a lot of people, death is still a shock when it does occur. Um, And sometimes people can't get their head around the fact that somebody is dying. And so their opportunity to be able to say goodbye is compromised by that. So part of the work we do is to try and help people see what's happening um, and navigate that road and to facilitate the best goodbye possible with the person who's dying. I was looking through one of your talks and you have a quote from Joan Didion, the American author and playwright. Her book is fabulous. I have it myself. The Year of Magical Thinking about the 18 months after her husband John died suddenly. And the quote is, grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. We anticipate that someone close to us will die. We live with the fear of it, but we don't look beyond the few days or weeks that immediately follow such an imagined death. And that's so true. We, we, we know people in our lives are going to die, but it still comes as, as such a shock. And we often talk, we're very good at funerals here in Ireland and it's all very fast, particularly in comparison to other countries, even the UK, it goes on a lot longer. And then all of a sudden everybody's gone and there's nothing to organise and that can be a very tough time, can't it? Absolutely. And people don't know what to expect. They don't really know what's normal if they've never had 
a death or a big bereavement before. So they're trying to figure out what to expect. They don't understand that grief affects not just our feelings, but how we think um, and therefore how we act and make sense of the world and affect us physically. So giving people information about what normal grief might look like, what could be typical, um, can really enable them to understand their grief differently and find their way to navigate through their grief to a point where they learn to live with it. Because grief is something that will come to all of us and it's something that we do have to learn to live with at some point. And you said there it's hard to know for people what to expect and what's normal. And I assume everything's normal. Tears, no tears, physical ailment that you just don't feel like yourself. All of it is is a very normal reaction. It is all a very normal reaction, but normal and grief means that we're different to how we are prior to the grief. And that's what unsettles us. We're often not predictable to ourselves, never mind to anybody else. So we can get very confused by this whole dynamic that's going on and all these different thoughts and feelings that are happening. And the fact that we don't know how we're going to be until a given moment or a given day. So grief, although is normal, and we can give people some guidelines around that, it doesn't feel comfortable and it doesn't feel okay. And people sometimes don't know that things like headaches because grief is a type of stress or tension in the shoulders or getting minor aches and pains and illnesses is a normal part of grief or that loss of concentration and memory and things like that. So lots can happen in grief and we don't understand that that is all the different ways that grief is showing up. We only expect the tears So helping people understand, actually, this is normal. It will pass. And the idea that grief will come in in waves, but also go out again. And and through that, that they learn to live with it. It was bandied around that there were these stages of grief and anger and acceptance. And it was described as as very linear. But you say that's that's not the case, that waves is more of an apt description of grief. Grief is definitely not linear and I think it's something that shifts and changes over time and it's something that we do learn to live with because we never stop missing the person and we never um, get over the fact that they have gone but we do learn to live with it and we integrate it and the stage theory I think has been misrepresented over time and sometimes that's what people think is that they'll keep going on a straight path whereas grief has lots more twists and turns and it is the fact that those waves of grief can overwhelm us at stages and it can be something simple like you're in the supermarket and you see their favorite food on the shelf and next thing the surge of grief can come out of nowhere and overwhelm you in that moment and so although you'll always miss the person you can get to a point again of living life well and enjoying life and being able to engage with other things but for a period when we're grieving that can be gone because sometimes those waves are just too strong to allow space for much else. What is your advice on on how we look after the people in our lives who are grieving? I think sometimes it can be helpful to ask them what would best help them. Do you know, so in the early days, maybe in the few days after somebody dies, there's lots of practical things that are helpful. But over time, in the weeks and months to come, it can be the fact that you'll go for a walk with them or that you'll ring and talk to them, even if they're not able to say a lot. Try not to think of fixing the person because grief isn't something to be fixed but let them to express it sometimes people are more able to talk and other times they're not or they're upset and if we're uncomfortable and if we try and make them okay again actually what we're saying to them on another level is don't show me your grief and closing it off so giving people the opportunity to express their grief to have a good day or a bad day can be really supportive to somebody because it's allowing them to express whatever it is that's going on 
um, and to continue to navigate through what's happening. What about families then? Because you mentioned there that everybody grieves differently and sometimes I suppose that can create issues perhaps in families where one is deemed to be grieving more than the other when that's simply not the case. It's just the way they are grieving. I think in families, we all have different personalities, but we also all had a different relationship with the person who died. And so we try not to think of it as a hierarchy of one grief being worse than or better than another. And it's more thinking about difference and thinking about what is it that my grief looks like and what helps me. And that might be the exact opposite to what helps somebody else. So, for example, one person just can't bear to go out in the world for a while. They can't bear to be around other people. Whereas somebody else, their personality and coping type is that they're out and busy and distracted all the time. So those two people can misunderstand each other and feel that neither is being respectful or grieving. But if we can understand that it's difference and different expressions um, rather than not caring, I think that's really helpful. And what's your advice for people on dealing with special dates, birthdays, anniversaries, where inevitably that wave can come again? Sometimes the wave is actually worse in the lead up to the event because you're in some ways rehearsing it or imagining it or, you know, going through it all. And on the day itself, it mightn't be as bad then because of all the work that you've already done. But to think about what would it be that's helpful to you on that day, planning something. And the something can be really small. So at the talk last night, one of the um, men spoke about having a memory jar where they dipped into on the special occasions. Um, other people talk about having a celebration on that day. So there's so many different ways and there's no one right way to do it. And it's also that that will evolve over time. What you do in the first year might be just about getting through. And in year two or year three, then you can begin to think a bit more about what might be useful. Well, Niamh Fanoukin, Coordinator of Social Work and Bereavement Services at St Francis Hospice in Dublin. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Sarah Ouan, and Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.